All right. Well, we are in the book of Acts, and we are uh, just entering into Acts chapter 21. So if you can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 17 this morning. I'll give you a minute to turn there. Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemas, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Thus ends our reading of God's authoritative word. May all who hear it find that they themselves are submissive to the will of God. Many years ago when my family and I decided to become missionaries to Thailand, there, there were a lot of obstacles, hurdles that we had to go through before we could move. We did exploratory trips. We had to go through a readiness assessment given by our mission agency. We then had to raise the necessary funds that we would need in order to live overseas. But not only that, we then had to go through this missionary training program out in Colorado. And before we could shift our residency, we, we also had to sell many of our earthly goods as well as find renters for our home as we were unable to sell our house due to the housing crash at that time. And bottom line, getting to Thailand was a very, very stressful time for our family. But probably the most challenging thing for us was 
letting our family know that we were moving. You see, in our minds, we knew that God was calling us to Thailand. But that's a hard thing to explain to family members who are not Christians. And so it was no surprise when, we, when, when they pushed back against the notion that we would be living half a world away. In essence, they did not want us to go. And they each let us know in their own way. Some were simply brash and upfront, while others were a little more subtle and manipulative in their speech. And yet they all made sure that we knew that they were not happy. And while it was true that their, their hearts were breaking, our hearts were breaking as well. For, for we desired to have the support of our family, and we just weren't getting it. They just couldn't understand the calling that God had placed upon our lives. And while their actions were motivated out of a love for us, what they were truly doing was making our journey that much more difficult. The Apostle Paul also had a calling placed upon him. And it was a calling that required a different type of sacrifice than the sacrifice that my family had to make. You see, the, the Holy Spirit was directing him, directing the Apostle Paul to the city of Jerusalem. And he was letting him know that there would be suffering in his immediate future. And think about the last time we were in the book of Acts. Paul, Paul was giving his departing words to the elders in Ephesus. And he was pretty certain that this was going to be the last time that he would ever see these men again. And so he was giving to them these last-minute instructions on how to lead the church well once he was gone. And that was because Paul knew that he might never set foot in Ephesus again. And the reason he thought this was because of, the, of that message that the Holy Spirit had given to him. Look, look back again in Acts chapter 20. Look at verses 22 through 24. And listen to what is said there. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And so Paul understood that the Holy Spirit was directing him to Jerusalem. And, but not only that, in fact, the, the word that he used there is constrain, right? The Holy Spirit was constraining him to go. And Paul knew exactly what would await him there as well, right? Imprisonment, affliction. And yet, unlike the prophet Jonah who ran in the opposite direction when God gave him a calling, Paul did not intend to stray either to the right or to the left. Rather, he would be like his master, the Lord Jesus, who had set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, and towards the cross that awaited him there. But the question remains, 
Why was Paul willing to face such tribulation? Why would he go to this city knowing that nothing good would happen? Because he valued his Lord more than he valued his own life. And yet this steadfastness of Paul would be tested. And this is exactly what we see in our passage for today. Look, look again at verses 1 through 4 back in Acts chapter 21. And when we had parted from them and set sail and came by the, a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And, th and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And so Luke, he takes us quickly from the city of Miletus over in Asia Minor, across the Mediterranean Sea, into the, to the city of Tyre and the region of Phoenicia. And if we can put up that map for a quick second. Um, right there is the city of Tyre. Right there is the city of Jerusalem. So this is where they landed. Paul was now approximately 100 miles directly north of his final destination, which was Jerusalem, the city where imprisonment and afflictions awaited him. And so his journey was almost complete. And yet, when you travel overseas, it can be wearisome, and they were waiting for the next boat traveling down further south. And so Paul and his eight companions, they, they sought refuge with the Christians within this city. In fact, they, they spent seven days there, right? And it was during those seven days that these brothers and sisters in the Lord from the city of Tyre tried to convince Paul that, that traveling back to Jerusalem was not such a good idea. And the reason they were doing that was because the Holy Spirit was revealing to them as well what was awaiting Paul once he would arrive. Imprisonment and these afflictions. And this is why we see them pleading with this man not to go. And yet Paul was not deterred, for on the seventh day he departed once again. If you look at verses 5 and 6, it says this, When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. And so we see these Christians in Tyre, they, they, were, they were saying their goodbyes to these missionaries. And, and, and they follow them all the way outside the city to the beach, right? To where they're going to set sail again. And the reason they did this is because they, they too did not know if they would ever see Paul this side of glory. And so what do you do when you have no control over your circumstances? You pray, right? You get on your hands and your knees. You lift up your voice to your heavenly Father. For you know one thing is true. You know that he is in control. You know that he has the ability to rescue 
even in the most dire of circumstances. And so that's what they did. They, they prayed with Paul for his journey. And this is the same model that we should follow, right? Whenever the calling of God is placed upon us, we should seek his guidance, understanding that he alone knows the outcome of all of our days. And that he alone has the ability to carry us through even our darkest of moments. And so they prayed with one another. They prayed with Paul. Well, let's continue our story. Look at, look at verses 7 through 9. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemas, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried, daughter, unmarried daughters who prophesied. And so we now find Paul and his companions in the city of Caesarea, which was a, a large seaport at that time. And it was there that we come across a familiar name, right? This disciple named Philip. I hope you remember Philip. He was one of the seven Hellenistic Jews who at the, at the founding of the church in Jerusalem was chosen for the distribution of food among the widows. But not only did he serve in this capacity, but, but remember it was, it was him who, who led that Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord. Philip had, had met him on the road and, and answered his questions concerning the suffering servant written about in the book of Isaiah. Philip had shown this man that, that these writings were about Jesus. Philip shared the gospel with him, led him to Christ. He then baptized them, welcoming this man into the kingdom of God. And then, in an instant, the power of the Holy Spirit swept Philip away to the city of Azotus. There he preached the gospel from town to town until he finally came to rest in the city of Caesarea. And there this mighty, mighty evangelist had found a home. There he found a wife. There he now had four daughters, all of whom were of marriable age and who could prophesy. And so God had chosen to bless this man in so many ways. And yet what is interesting about this story is that Philip, being one of the seven, well, he would have been a very, very good friend of Stephen, the very first martyr within the church. And do you remember who was leading the charge against Stephen's life? The Apostle Paul, who was also known as Saul, right? Luke tells us that the, the men who had stoned Stephen had laid their cloaks at Paul's feet. And yet now, all these, all these years later, Stephen's good friend Philip was hosting the very man who had overseen Stephen Stoning. How could this be? How, how could Philip be so forgiving to the, the one who murdered his friend? It was because of the forgiveness that Christ had given to Philip. 
Consider this account from the Gospel of Matthew. Look at Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, he, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, if you don't know, 10,000 talents is hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. That, that's pretty much what was owed to this king. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now a hundred denarii isn't small change, it's a hundred days wages. So do the math in your head, figure out what that is. That's a third of a year of work. It's a good amount of money. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do it due to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You see, even though Paul was a part of the murder of Philip's friend, the debt that Philip owed to his king was substantially more. Substantially, substantially more. How could Philip not forgive Paul, considering how Christ had forgiven him? For in Christ, Philip had been set free. And in Christ, so had Paul. Paul was now Philip's brother. And because of the deep, deep love that Jesus had for him, Philip now had a deep, deep love for Paul. And it was in that love that we see once again this desire to protect a brother from worldly harm. Look, look at our next verses back in Acts 21. Look at verses 10 and 11. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. 
Paul and his friends would remain in Caesarea for several days, and it was during this time that this man named Agabus came to town, right? Again, we, we are graced with another name in which we should be familiar. Remember, it was Agabus back in Acts chapter 11 who had prophesied that there would be a worldwide famine. And it was this prophecy that, that led to the collection within the church at Antioch which brought famine relief to all the churches within Judea. And so this Agabus was not only a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, but he was also a true prophet of God. And now we see him here again, right? Giving another prophetic word from the Lord. And yet the way he gave this prophecy was very, very dramatic, was it not? I mean, picture this in your mind. First, He's asking for Paul's belt, you know. Let me borrow your belt. Okay, you know. Um, and so from the start, he's, he's grabbing everyone's attention, right? And, and then everyone, they, they would have been eyeing this man as wanting to see what he was up to and seeing, what, did, what are you using that belt for? Why, why are you tying your feet together? What's going on here? I'm sure he made that, that not nice and snug on his feet. And then, taking the remaining length, you know, he's, his feet are bound. He's probably sitting there on the floor trying to wrap his arms, right? He probably has to use his teeth to pull it tight, right? I mean, if that's not going to get everyone's attention, I don't know what is. All eyes would have been fixed upon him. That's when he would have spoken these words. Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So why all the drama? Why, why not just speak the prophecy instead of acting it out? Well, what seems unique to us is really not that unique. I mean, consider some of the Old Testament prophets and how God had used them to convey the stark reality of, of his judgment upon the nations. It was a prophet, Jeremiah, who, who smashed pottery jars as a symbolic warning to God's people of the disaster that awaited them. It was a prophet, Ezekiel, who, who had baked bread over human feces and then ate it in order to proclaim to the people that they were unclean before God. And then consider this example from the prophet Isaiah. Look at Isaiah chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. In the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, at that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from your waist, and take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years, as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives, and the Cushite exiles, both young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt, 
Then they shall be dismayed and ashamed because of Cush, their hope, and of Egypt, their boast. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, this is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? Now imagine this man walking around naked for three years straight in order to send a message. But that's exactly what Isaiah did. And why? Because God wanted to ingrain into the minds of those who saw it his dire, dire warning. He, he didn't just want them to hear the message. He wanted them to visualize it so that they would never forget. And now God was doing the same thing through the prophet Agabus. He, he wanted to make sure that everyone in that room, including the apostle Paul understood what was going to happen to Paul should he go to Jerusalem. God wanted to shake these believers to their core. And that's exactly what we see happening, right? Look at, look at the next verse. Look at verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And so the conclusion of the believers, including Paul's eight companions, was that Paul should not go. I mean, that's the obvious choice, right? Why would you knowingly go into a place where they're going to arrest you, put you in shackles, and throw you behind prison bars? No, I mean, the smart thing to do would be to turn around and head north, right? Head north to Antioch, to Paul's sending church. There, Paul could just regroup in peace and perhaps begin a fourth missionary journey. You see, because of Agabus' prophetic warning, everybody in the room, including Paul's eight companions, they were now pleading with Paul, don't go, don't go. I mentioned earlier how Kim's family and my family were trying to convince us to change our minds before we moved to Thailand. And we expected this, particularly from those who were unbelievers. I mean, how could they understand a calling such as this if they didn't have Christ in their life? But what I didn't expect was the same pressure coming from my dad. I, I thought if anyone would understand, it would be him. I mean, after all, he was a strong believer. He knew the importance of the Great Commission. And yet even he had placed pressure upon me not to go. And I get it. Nobody wants to see their son or their daughter-in-law or their grandchildren, for that matter, move to the other side of the world. And yet, because of the calling that Christ had placed upon us, it, it had these ripple effects upon the people whom we loved. You see, when Jesus asks a man to count the costs, part of the cost that needs to be counted is the suffering that it might bring to the ones that he loves. 
These are kind of the secondary consequences that, that, that have an effect upon those who are not really directly involved in the ministry. And this is a reality that we as Christians have to face. Jesus talked about this. Look at Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, first, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Then Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Dear friends, the call of Christ is not for the faint of heart. It requires sacrifice. And sometimes that sacrifice will have a massive, massive impact on the ones whom you love. And you must count those costs as well. The Apostle Paul knew that the hearts of, of those who dearly loved him were breaking. And yet Paul also understood that, that this kingdom calling to suffer for his master was not just for him. That there was a lesson that God had for every Christian in that room. Look, look back again at Acts 21. Look at verse 13. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And so moved by their heartfelt reaction, Paul spoke both tenderly and forcefully. Their tears truly were, truly were breaking his heart. Not only did he have to bear his own cross, bear the cross that Jesus gave to him. I mean, that was challenging enough, but now... His companions, the eight companions that he went, that had been traveling with him, they were making it that much more difficult. And Paul, he, he didn't want to cause his friend's sadness, yet he must follow the Holy Spirit's leading. And now so must they. You see, the, the, the wisdom of man is not like the wisdom of God, is it? For the, for the wisdom of man can only see so much. Yet God's wisdom, it sees all. Everything. I mean, consider when Jesus shared the plan of the cross to his own disciples. How did they react? Look, look at Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. 
But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, when, when Jesus revealed the will of the Father, Peter didn't like it, right? Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you, Lord. Peter was using man's wisdom, right? And yet what was required for Peter's salvation, and frankly for the salvation of all of God's people, is God's wisdom. And in God's wisdom, Jesus had to suffer. He had to go to the cross and die for us. Now here in our story, in that same wisdom, Paul must suffer as well. And yet the Christians in Caesarea were being short-sighted. They were using man's wisdom. They, They didn't want to see any harm come to their friend. But Paul knew better. He was ready not only to be in prison, but to even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these others, they, they needed to learn to accept that. Basically, what Paul was saying was this, you may not be ready for me to suffer, but I am. I'm ready to count the cost, to pick up my cross Follow my Lord. Will you be willing to do the same? It's like I said earlier, the the call of Christ is not for the faint of heart. It requires sacrifice. And sometimes that sacrifice is because of God's specific calling that he's placed upon you. But other times... Other times it is because God has put a specific calling upon someone else, someone whom you love. Yet what the gospel does is it, is it leads a man to value Jesus over his own life, to value Christ's kingdom over his own worldly happiness. For the one who embraces the gospel, well, that person truly realizes that this life is fleeting. And that what little time has been given to us should be given to the Lord. And for Paul, that meant imprisonment and chains. And for Paul's friends, that meant knowing that the one whom they loved was going to suffer. Look at verse 14. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. And so this community of believers, they finally realized that this was God's will. They they had finally set aside their human wisdom and submitted to the wisdom of God. And this is what all those who desire to follow Jesus must learn to do. And that is what you must learn to do. Dear friends, the calling of the kingdom is a calling upon all of us. And when one suffers, we all suffer. 
but we don't suffer in vain. No, rather in Christ, he uses our suffering in order to build a lasting kingdom. Count out all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so these trials that God sends our way, they're for our own good. They are to build us up, preparing us for all that Christ has for us. Now, I may be wrong, but I truly believe that it won't be long before God will be calling the church in America to face the same chains, the same imprisonment that Paul faced. And the question that you must answer is this. Are you willing to say, let the will of the Lord be done? When it is your pastor who they take away. When it is your spouse who they take away. When it is your son who they take away. When it is your daughter who they take away. Listen, if, if we are willing to share in the blessings of the gospel, then we should also be willing to share in the sufferings of the gospel as well. For that is what Jesus has called us to do. This is the reality that the early church was facing. And this is the reality that much of the church today is also facing. And it may be the reality here in the not-so-distant future. Paul was willing to suffer for Jesus. And so were these other believers who loved Paul so dearly. And this is proven by what we see next. Look at, look at the end of our passage. Look at verses 15 through 17. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Just as he had learned from his Lord, Paul has set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He did not waver. He, he did not look back. And in our Sunday school this morning, we were talking about Lot and his family fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah and the command to not look back. And yet Lot's wife looked back. She turned and into a pillar of salt. Christ calls us to look forward, to not look back. That was his calling upon Paul. Paul, you, you see, he saw the chains. He saw the iron bars that were before him. And yet he welcomed them with open arms, knowing that, that they were there for kingdom purposes. Now, how Christ would use them, he did not know. But he had faith in his master, knowing that all these things were a part of his will. And you are called to that same faith. You must be willing to suffer 
even when God has not revealed to you his greater purpose. And that is because you must trust in your king, in this one who he himself set his face like flint toward Jerusalem, who he himself went to the cross. And why did he go to the cross? Well, in order that you might be included in his kingdom. Let the will of the Lord be done. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now with this realization that none of us have yet to be asked to suffer in the same manner that Paul did. And yet there may come a time when you do ask the same of us. And so we pray today that that you would give to us the courage that these early believers had. That we would be willing to speak these words, let the will of the Lord be done. And yet we can only do this if, if you give us strength. And so fill us, we pray, with the power of your Holy Spirit. And may our focus be ever upon your Son and upon what he did upon that cross. And may we count it all joy when we do suffer for his name. May our vision be an eternal vision. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.